What is so unique and indispensable about the wisdom of a mother, an Italian mother in particular? Syndicated talk show host Teresa Tamio will tell us. And Newsmax chief White House correspondent James Rosen discusses his recent book on the life of Justice Antonin Scalia. And later, Kristalina Everett will join me to talk the unexpected light of Thomas Alva Edison. The world over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover, but first, some news. According to reports in The Pillar, the Vatican will soon ask controversial Bishop Richard Sticca of Knoxville, Tennessee, to resign. This after over two years of scandal regarding the management of the diocese. The Vatican just completed an apostolic visitation and investigation of the diocese. Stika has been accused of protecting and covering up a seminarian who has multiple accusations of sexual assault levied against him. The bishop may also be responsible for mishandling other instances of sexual misconduct in the diocese of Knoxville. He has also been accused by some of his priests of bullying and harassment. It is not known whether Sticka will agree to offer his resignation. If he does not, sources close to the dicastery for bishops at the Vatican told the pillar that Francis will likely remove him from office. This could take several months. We will continue to monitor this story. When life and the world seem to spin out of control, where can one go for a little tough love and common sense? For many of us, that's usually the time we call mom. My next guest is a Catholic syndicated talk show host whose own mother serves as an inspiration for her latest book, Everything's Coming Up Rosy, 10 Things My Feisty Italian Mom Taught Me About Living a Godly Life. I can relate. Please welcome back to the program, Teresa Tamio. Teresa, thanks for being here. Now, you write that your mother's voice is always in your head. Is that a good thing? And why did you feel you had to write a book in your mother's uh, <laughs> yeah, Jersey I guess accent? That's a great no question. Less. I think when I was growing up, I would say maybe not so much, but I think now, yes, it's a very good thing because I realize the older I get, she spoke so much truth. And Shuri was feisty, as I say in the subtitle of the book, a lot of fun, but just basic common sense, Raymond, that we just don't see anymore. And she reminds me a lot, as I say in the book, of Mother Angelica, a little bit of Marie Barone from Everybody Loves Raymond, and Sophia Petrillo from Golden Girls, kind of all rolled up in one, if you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, believe me. Uh, you write that common sense is not really that common anymore, and neither is common decency, but that people desire to really get back to those basics. Why do you think there's a common lack of uh, common sense and decency in society today? And what are the basics you think people are looking to return to? Well, I think if, to me, it's it's pretty obvious, I think from my own story, because I fell away from the faith, as you know, for many, many years. And once you do that, mm -hmm. think slowly, even if you don't want to admit it, start to spin out of control. And I think we've just gotten so far away from God, from you know the basic understanding of who we are as human beings. We saw that loneliness uh, report that came out from the Surgeon General a few weeks ago, where he's saying we have an epidemic of loneliness. 
And I could just hear my mother's voice. As a matter of fact, I wrote an article about this for the register that was posted last week. I could hear my mother's voice in my head saying, for crying out loud, are you kidding me? You got to have the Surgeon General tell you to pick up the phone and call your mother. I mean, literally, he was telling us to answer the phone when a friend calls, invite someone over for dinner, you know, do something to support others in the community. So we are so far away from really caring about other people and so closed in on ourselves that I think there is this desire, but people are fighting it for some reason. I think it's fear. Maybe they fear that if they go back to God or engage in a relationship with God or with other people, that they'll lose something. But you could just tell in terms of what we're seeing out there in society, a rise in depression. Numbers came out this week on that, highest in a long time. You know, the, the loneliness report, the CDC's report on young girls. We need to get back to the basics of caring about one another, the golden rule, and just common sense, quite frankly. In your chapter entitled, It's Not All Peaches and Cream, you know, which focuses on really turning to God when we face challenges and suffering, you quote Pope Benedict XVI and his encyclical Space Salvi, where he writes, quote, it is not by sidestepping or fleeing from suffering that we are healed, but rather by our capacity for accepting it, maturing through it, and finding meaning through union with Christ who suffered with infinite love. How did your mom's teaching about dealing with suffering and pain mimic Benedict and that encyclical? And why is it so important that we face our suffering and challenges in life? Yeah, that's really a, a great question. And my mother certainly didn't have a college education. She had a high school education. She didn't have a theology degree, but she went through a lot of suffering in her own life, uh, discriminated against Italian-American family, very poor family on the East Coast, and also uh, losing a child. My sister died of cancer, uh, losing her husband. So she mm. did go through a lot. And then we had a very traumatic experience when I lived in Jersey City, New Jersey, where I was born, mm. where our apartment exploded and, and two people actually died in that yeah. explosion. And we were homeless for a while, living you know, from relative to relative, then having to move to Michigan. But my mom always persevered. I think it's because she came from a big, very strong Italian Catholic family. And you just, you know, you just mm. pulled up your, your bootstraps and you just kept going. And I think that's the lesson I learned that no matter what, God is still in charge. And the last chapter in the book is keep smiling. And my mother never lost her joy through all that suffering. And the other thing that she taught me, too, is that you can learn from suffering. And that's why the first chapter in the book is offer it up to God and put it at the foot of the cross, because we have to start there. We have to go to God, offer it up to him, surrender our lives every day, and then also look back in terms of gratitude. Okay, yeah, I've gone through a rough patch, or we've gone through this, or we've lost someone we love, but put things in the big picture and understand that this is not our home, that we're on a journey, we're on a pilgrimage. But again, I think my, my parents, my mom especially, just kept pushing through. She had that, you know, that real solid grit, that determination, mm. that zeal that Mother Angelica talked about all the time. Yeah, well, you, your mother, Rosie, also taught you the importance of redemptive suffering and letting go. Uh, and you discuss it in a, in a chapter I love. <laughs> Offer it up to God and put it at the foot of the cross. Uh, you, you point right. out that in the social media world we live in today, letting go and not making a nasty comment in response can be more difficult than it seems, uh, much less offering suffering up to God. How did Rosie's version of Catholic teaching on redemptive suffering and letting go help in your life? And what can others glean from what you learned? 
Well, it started when I was a child where if my sisters and I, if we weren't feeling well, we, you know, she'd say, offer it up, offer it up. And I'm thinking, why would God want my stomach ache or my headache or you know the fight I had with my best friend at school? What she was trying to tell me is to give it over to God because you can't solve things on your own. You have to have God's help. And she also said, you know, just mm-hmm. take a breath, give it over to God, and then come back to it and, and again, push through and learn from it. And as I look back over my life, despite some of the suffering that I've gone through and being away from the church and some of the pains, those are the times I know that I've learned the most. And I had a Bible study teacher say to me once, all sunshine makes a desert. And and I think about that in relationship mm-hmm. to what my mother said and also Mother Angelica, one of my favorite quotes, and I have this in the book where she said, the cross is not negotiable, sweetheart. It's a requirement and mm-hmm. that holiness is not for mm-hmm. wimps. And so I think this idea of, okay, you're suffering, you give it over to God, and asking God to help you understand it, not to say why, but what, what am I supposed to learn from this? And that's the other big lesson mm-hmm. that came out of all of it is that I have looked back on my life and said, okay, I went through this and this is what I've learned, whether it's been on the professional level or on the personal level. I often tell people when I give my testimony that sometimes we look at our life like the back of a tapestry or a piece of needlepoint that can be very messy with strings and yarn going all over the place. And yet if we turn it around, we see how it makes sense maybe years later, and it's a beautiful portrait, a beautiful mm-hmm. picture of what God has done in our life. So I don't see how you can not offer it up to God because everything we go through, God will use it. You know, Romans eight twenty eight: all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according mm-hmm. to his purpose. Yeah, no, I, I, there's a, a wonderful, what I call practical lived spirituality that this book is filled with. And really, that is the hallmark of all the Italian mamas in my life, my own mother, Linda, Mm -hmm. my grandmother, Mary, and of course, Reverend Mother Angelica. Um, All of those women had that kind of practical lived faith, and your book is filled with that. You mentioned a little while ago the Surgeon General's report on loneliness and its effect on people. What do you think Rosie would advise? Um, regarding those who have cocooned themselves away and cloistered themselves from society at large at this point? Oh, she would basically say, you know, uh, get over yourself and get out there, pick up the phone, go visit your mother, go visit your cousin, go visit your sister, make somebody a bowl of macaroni. Simple things for being there. And I can remember something that my husband and I heard when we were in the diaconate program, the very first class that we went through, one of our diaconate teachers said, very similar to what my mother said, he said, you know what? Christianity is just about starting with showing up. And that's what my mother would say, show mm-hmm. up, be there for someone. Yeah, it's, it's so obvious. And yet we need to go over those lessons and be told mm. by the highest medical official in the land to pick up the phone, return a phone yeah. call, invite someone over for dinner. So my mom well, would just say, get over yourself and get out there and do something with someone else. Well, but the problem is you have uh, more persuasive forces in the pop culture telling young right. people, particularly, uh, your phone is your God. Uh, it, this is all you need. Stay connected. Uh, stay popular. Stay in the know by staying on this in your cocoon. And for many, they have created a new alternative reality. Uh, your mother had a very firm response. I love this in the book. When you complained about being bored, uh, what did she tell you? You're right. You're right about this in the book. I don't want to ruin the story. 
she said, go ride your bike. And then she would she would tell me, she'd go into the story about how growing up in Jersey City, New Jersey with nine brothers and sisters, they didn't have bikes. If they had a bike, they shared it among the oh. whole neighborhood. They would play on the stoop with the front porch, right? Or they would play, you know, in the water when mm -hmm. the fire department would come and open up the fire hydrant. So they have, you know, uh, their own version of, let's say, a, a pool, which is, that's all they had growing up in, in the inner city, you know, in a mm. poor neighborhood. And she would make me yeah. think about, okay, we weren't rich. We, I was, we grew up in a middle-class home, but we had nice things. I had nice toys. Every few years, I'd get a new bike. And she'd say, you got a bike sitting out there in the garage. I didn't have that when I was a kid. You're not going to be bored. Go ride your bike. And, you know, at first, I would mm. roll my eyes. But then I started thinking about that. And even as I got older, it's like, wow, pretty good common sense. Think about what you have. And another chapter in the book, I'm sure you saw this, is really funny. I was complaining about not having a pool. And she said she was so frustrated. You want a pool? Go fill up a garbage can. In other words, you can't always have what you want and make do with what you have. But that's great advice mm -hmm. because so many parents today, and God love them, they, they try to do the right thing. They give their kids too much. Dr. Ray Grendy talks about this all the time. And so they have mm -hmm. everything, and then they keep wanting more and more, and nothing satisfies. They have to learn that you can't yeah. always have everything you want, that, you know what, life is going to not always be peaches and cream. So, again, I tried to write it from a practical perspective. And to encourage parents not to be afraid to say no and to learn how to do that mm. because it's really about loving someone when you're saying no in certain circumstances. Well, it also teaches kids to not only respect and appreciate what they have, but to see the glory and wonder in new things that are, you know, authentically come to you or that you encounter in life. Look, I was on my way into a New York building today and I stopped for the first time and I've been in this building, I don't know, 30 times. And I noticed the beautiful work on the on the walls and the ceilings of this place, beautiful hand-painted gold frescoes on the ceiling. I just never paid attention to it before. And I kind of sat there for a moment and took it in and said, imagine the workmen and the craftsmanship that went into this. Those right. moments we lose when we're rushing from one thing to another. There's another chapter in the book. It's called Remember Your Blessed Mother is Watching You, which is what your mother used to say to you before you'd go out with friends to remind you not to do anything you'd regret. Uh, how did that um, dose of Italian guilt shape Teresa Tamio? I think that sometimes, and I'm not talking about the guilt in the book, I explained this. I'm not talking about the guilt that sometimes it really puts people in a situation where they can't move forward, they can't accept forgiveness. That, that's not the type of guilt we're talking about. We're talking about those little, you know, those little dabs, those little nudges from the Holy Spirit or our moms that remind us that we should have remorse. We should feel badly if we hurt someone. We should feel, uh, you know, wrong. We should feel that we've done something wrong if we're ignoring someone. So, when my mom would say to me, remember, the Blessed Mother is watching you, that would be planted in my mind. Now, try to do something, you know, uh, unethical as a kid or as a teenager or as a college student with the image of our beautiful lady in the back of your head. That's why my mother was, even though she mm. was not a theologian, basically with a master's degree, she was a pretty smart street theologian. But also, I think, helping us respect each other and then growing up with the images in, in the house of the Blessed Mother, of the Last Supper, the crucifix mm. on the wall, Having those images, and Mother Angelica talked about holy images right in the home, that made an impression mm -hmm. on me to the point now in my own home, I have those mm -hmm. images. And I grew to love the Blessed Mother. And it really affected me that, gosh, I don't want to disappoint her. I'm not saying I was a perfect kid, okay? I didn't always listen, obviously. Mm -hmm. I fell away from the church for a while. But those seeds were planted as a child growing up in an Italian-American mm -hmm. home, as my mother did. 
and it made a difference. And so again, the blessed mother, mm -hmm. as my mom would say, the blessed mother is watching you. I think it's pretty good advice. And sometimes I think we give guilt. And again, I'm not talking about condemnation, but those little nudges from our parents, from our older siblings that make us think twice about how we're treating people. I think sometimes that type of guilt gets a bad rap. Mm. You write that your relationship with your mother, Rosie, was not always easy. You, uh, you write this, quote, our relationship was hardly the makings of a Hallmark Mother's Day movie, but in the end, we were very close. Okay, Teresa, what was the thing that most annoyed you about your mother? Well, I don't know if it was so much that it annoyed me. I would say that we had a difference of opinion on a lot of issues. Uh, it's starting politics. We oh. were, it's interesting. She was much more uh, left-leaning than I was. And, and so that always caused a little bit mm. of, even though she was very faithful, she had some very, I think, different ideas about things than I did in terms of our politics. Mm. But I think we, she had a hard time, I think, relating to me because I was extremely independent. And I had two older sisters mm. and they were very close to her and they wouldn't make a decision on you know, what Kleenex to buy or what paper towel to buy without asking my mother's opinion. And I basically did things on my own. Now, I, was, I obviously was more of a daddy's girl as well. I was extremely close to my father, close wow. to my mother, but even so, and I say this in the book, I was a daddy's girl mm -hmm. and my father really believed he had three daughters and he wanted to raise us to be independent and strong. And he really encouraged me. My mom did too, but my dad did so even more when I decided to go into communications. And I pretty much made that decision mm -hmm. and went off on my own, picked the college. And my mom always kind of felt slighted and could not really understand this whole thing about, about career. But as, as I grew into my career and, and was on television locally back home in Detroit, she really appreciated. Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of a difference in vocations where she was a mom and, yeah. and my husband and I couldn't have children. We never had children. So there was a little bit of a distance mm. there. But overall, at the end of the day, you, know, you take two 100% feisty Italian-American women. You're not going to agree on everything. But we really well, appreciated yeah, you're agree each on other and loved each just other. A little and bit. Yeah, I, I took care of her at the end of her life. And I think at that point, looking at her and uh. trying to look at life through her glasses, or as we say, rosy-colored glasses, it really made me appreciate mm. her that much more. Teresa, before I let you go, what trait of Rosie do you now see in yourself? <laughs> oh, that's great. I think my uh, my very practical nature of, you know, you got to be kidding me. Get, you know, snap out of it. Like, you know, the Mother uh -huh. Angelica, you know, the, the cross is not negotiable, sweetheart. I think the, the, the urgency to get back to reality and just to knock off the nonsense mm -hmm. and treat each other with decency, I, I don't, I, I'm really feeling... My mom speaking to me about love and just getting people back into relationship with each other mm. and, and being, you know, a little bit, a little bit feisty sometimes. You know me. We've been friends for years mm -hmm. and, and that that's OK yeah. to be feisty and to remind people, seriously, what do you need a house to fall on you? So I think her practical way of looking <laughs> at life. Teresa Tamio, thank you for the time. Thank you for joining us and for the book. Everything's coming up. Rosie, 10 Things My Feisty Italian-American Mom Taught Me About Living a Godly Life by Teresa Tamio is available at bookstores everywhere and online and from EWTN's Religious Catalog. Thank you, Teresa, and happy travels. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Ciao. Great to talk to you again. God bless. When he's not busy serving as chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, my next guest is also an accomplished author. Tonight, he's here to talk about his brand new book, 
on one of the most influential legal minds in U.S. history, Antonin Scalia. Scalia, rise to greatness, 1936 to 1986, captures the first 50 years of Justice Antonin Scalia's life. Please welcome back to the program, James Rosen. James, great to see you. Uh, now, I know you meticulously researched this biography. What inspired you? What drew you to dedicate five years of your life to write about Nino Scalia? Well, first, thanks so much for having me back, Raymond. It's an honor to be back with you. My pleasure. Uh, this book has its origins in my high school years in the 1980s when I first saw Justice Scalia on television on a program called The Constitution, that delicate balance on PBS, where eminent minds were situated in a theater in the round setting and debated hypotheticals. He struck me as so different from the other participants who included other Supreme Court justices, the likes of Dan Rather, Gerald Ford, and what have you. And when I first got to Washington as a reporter in 1999, then for Fox News, one of the first things I did was write to Justice Scalia seeking an interview. And that commenced an extraordinary mm. correspondence between us that went on for a couple of years, amusing and unusual, and I'll be covering that in volume two of this biography. And we also had a pair of lunches, one-on-one, huh. -on -one, at the A.V. Ristorante, his favorite Italian restaurant, where we drank wine together. He made me eat off of his plate. I was like, Mr. Justice, I can't. So come on, come on, come on. So there I am shoveling vegetables off of Justice Scalia's plate. He drove me back to my office in his car, and I've subsequently confirmed with uh, classmates who knew him back in the 1950s, as well as uh, clerks in the, in the 21st century, that it was a scary experience for them as well as for me. Uh, and so I knew from those extraordinary experiences with him about a quarter century ago, when he was a very, very generous to a young reporter, that someday I would write about him. James, as you mentioned, you knew Justice Scalia. Tell me a little bit about the man that you encountered, and were, was he aware that you planned to write a biography of him? I didn't even plan necessarily to write a biography of him at that point. I was really just reaching out for an interview. The lunches were held off the record. Uh, they will remain that way. Mm. Um, however, the, uh, in terms of the substance of the conversations, uh, I will be excerpting from our amusing and unusual correspondence in Volume 2, uh, which occurred <laughs> on Supreme Court stationery. Uh, he was very down-to-earth, I found, in my exposure to him of over maybe three, three-and-a-half hours' time with him. Uh, you could be forgiven, uh, seated across uh, a table at the A.V. Ristorante uh, from him, for uh, periodically forgetting that you're in the presence of one of the most uh, brilliant intellectual minds of our time, and just uh, imagining that you're having lunch with your avuncular Italian uncle, a sort of Paul Sorvino-like character. Uh, he was that yeah. down-to-earth. Um, <laughs> But uh, I'll tell you one interesting story about that, which, again, doesn't really touch on the substance of our conversations, uh, where I arrived first at the A.V. Ristorante. This will be in volume two. Right now, the book Scalia Rise to Greatness tells the story of his rise to the Supreme Court, his taking his seat on the Supreme Court, and volume two will cover his Supreme Court tenure. Uh, I arrived first for lunch, and when he arrived, he was a sort of silhouetted, uh, jaunty figure uh, with the sunshine from outside shining in through the front door. And, and making him appear silhouetted as he sort of strolled towards me. The pleasantries were effectuated, uh, and he then uh, grabs the menu and asks of our uh, waiter, who was a young fellow who was really Italian and spoke only broken English, what is pulpy? What is pulpy? And the, and the waiter says, octopus. And he says, octopus, I'll have the pulpy. And he hands the, the, the menu. And I decided to go for something easily manipulable with a knife and fork, veal parmesan, reflecting my own Staten Island heritage. And uh, mm -hmm. the guy's writing it down, and Justice Scalia says, no, no, no. And he says to the waiter, give him the rabbit. And the waiter and I look at him in unison and say, hey, rabbit. And he says, yeah, yeah, he's going to like, you're going to like the rabbit. Give him the rabbit. 
and the waiter stalked off and eventually returned with rabbit. Raymond, I hadn't had rabbit ever in my life until that moment. I don't think I've had it since. We're going back 25 years. Uh, and it was an example of the country's foremost opponent of judicial activism overruling my lunch order. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that, that gives... is that's classic Nino. <laughs> he always knew better in in life, if not in the law. Um, I want to get into Scalia's upbringing. He was born in New Jersey, grew up in Queens. His father was a Sicilian immigrant, and his mother, the daughter of Italian immigrants. He was Jesuit educated. How did that particular setting at that time in history form Nino Scalia to be the man and the jurist he would later become? So this book, Scalia: Rise to Greatness. First of all, it's the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia, which means it's the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia. The two previous biographies were one of which he cooperated with extensively. Uh, both turned out fairly contemptuous of the justice's philosophy, his jurisprudence, his legacy, his conduct. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is the first admiring uh, portrait of him at book length, and it draws on a wealth of documentary and personal sources that were unavailable to or overlooked by the previous uh, biographers. Among these documents is a secret oral history of his life that Justice Scalia conducted in his Supreme Court chambers in 1992 and which was only recently unsealed. And I'm the first biographer to make use of it. He was asked in that secret oral history in 1992 if he believed that his Jesuitical tra uh, training, uh, he was the valedictorian both at his uh, Jesuit high school, Xavier High School in Manhattan, which is a rare hybrid of a Jesuit institution and a military academy. He was valedictorian there and then went to Georgetown University, uh, another Jesuit institution where, again, he was valedictorian. He was asked in that oral history by his interviewer, uh, an attorney he had known for many years, uh, whether he believed his Jesuitical training uh, came to affect his uh, view of originalism and original meaning as uh, the defining goal for judges and justices on the Supreme Court with its reverence for text and what have you. And Justice Scalia was reluctant to draw that connection, but there's no question that his Catholic faith, uh, his parents were devout Catholics, mm. uh, and his training at the hands of the Jesuits instilled in him um, a reverence for text and also um, a kind of rigor uh, and, and polish mm. to the rhetorical enterprise. Uh, and I tell the story, I interviewed one of his lone surviving, few surviving classmates from Xavier, a man who became an Opus Dei priest, Father Connor, who's one of the most important interviewees in the whole book, uh, and who is still preaching and blogging actively in his 80s, very sharp of memory and logic, uh, about Scalia's early faith. And uh, he was a witness to uh, Scalia's faith as, an, as, a, as a foundational uh, propellant for him, if you will. So this is the first biography that really treats um, Scalia's faith in the depth that it deserves. One point, Scalia resisted all attempts to suggest that he imbued his decisions with his Catholic faith. He used to say, there's that's no correct. such thing as a Catholic hamburger. The closest we could come would be a hamburger that's perfectly made. <laughs> Classic Scalia. Uh, you write about his father, Sam, this way. A good man, moral character was king in Sam's eyes, prized more than intellect or wealth. Son, he would tell Nino, brains are like muscles. You can rent them by the hour. The only thing that's not for sale is character. Above all, Salvatore's life and work represented the essence, the full power of the American dream, and the younger Scalia internalized this early on. Indeed, it later informed the justice's jurisprudence. Tell us about the influence of Sam Scalia and how 
That, if not the Catholicism, may have shaped his jurisprudence. And what of his mother, Catherine? So, um, Justice Scalia's father and his mother both died um, just around the same time as each other and um, just before uh, Antonin Scalia was nominated to the Supreme Court. So they lived to see him become an appellate mm. court judge. Um, and that was the one bittersweet element of his confirmation to the Supreme Court for him. And we have the previously unpublished story here of a law clerk who was working with him at that time that that happened, where he finally secured uh, a seat on the Supreme Court. And, and the clerk mentioned, it's too bad your parents didn't live to see it. And Scalia actually weeps uh, in memory of his parents. They were both teachers. Hmm. The father came here not knowing English in 1920 and became a renowned Romance languages professor. His mother, as you say, was a school teacher. Uh, between their teaching profession, their dedication uh, to classic texts, uh, and, and, and Salvatore Scalia's particular suspicion of the damage that could be done in unfaithful translation of texts from one language to another. Uh, and with the immersion in the Catholic faith, uh, where uh, foundational texts uh, are central um, to, to the entire denomination and to the entire religion, uh, Scalia em uh, emerged with a, an extraordinary reverence for text, uh, whether it was the text of Shakespeare or whether it was the text of liturgy, um, uh, and this informed his jurisprudence. You write at length about Nino's larger-than-life personality. Uh, Justice Scalia, at the beginning of the book, you have this little interview with his daughter, Meg, which I loved. Um, and Meg says after his death, when people described him as larger-than-life, he was. And he was that way to us. And you say, and he, and he was cognizant that he was that way, right? And Meg says, oh, yes, oh, yeah. I mean, he was putting on a show, but it was a great show. And, uh, and you ask, where did that persona come from? Did it come from his college debating or his acting experience? Was it there all along? Um, tell us about what you discovered about his educational development uh, and how that shaped this larger-than-life personality that we, of course, came to know and some of us to love. Well, another Catholic priest who was interviewed for uh, this project was Father Paul Scalia, Justice Scalia's son. Uh, and he reminded me of how his father used to regale him with uh, stories, again, uh, at, uh, when he was attending Xavier High School, a Jesuit military academy in the 1950s, and from which Scalia uh, graduated as valedictorian, that uh, he and his classmates, including the future Father Bob Connor, uh, were terrorized by a particular Jesuit priest who uh, would have them conjugate Latin verbs in 60 seconds' time under the threat of an actual ticking mm -hmm. stopwatch. And he and Father Bob, to the end of their days together, uh, when they remained friends, uh, w whenever they got together at the Scalia's house in northern Virginia, the first thing they would do is conjugate Latin verbs for 60 seconds, uh, seeing who would do it better. Uh, but that, that commitment to rigor uh, is what Father Scalia told me about his father's development in, and, and education that we can see in his opinions because his liveliness as a writer, which was central to his influence and very much deliberate yeah. by him, uh, is also informed by a strict grammatical sense. He was a snoot by his own admission, which is a, a word that means someone who cares maybe a little too much about words and usage uh, and, uh, and gets strict with other folks about it. And so all of this really did come, in a sense, from his father's work, his mother's work as a teacher, but also the Catholic faith and the Jesuits. 
Yeah. And, you know, he I met Nino, uh, James, just as a sidebar here. Uh, he used to go to old St. Mary's, which had the Latin rite, the old the old Latin mass. And uh, he was there faithfully every morning uh, reading his uh, missal. But it was that same sense of tradition, the the rigor, as you say, of language and liturgy that I think bled over into his everyday life and and his view of the world. You write about a significant event in the lives of uh, Antonin and Maureen Scalia in 1960, his wife. That's quite telling. They attended a performance of A Man for All Seasons, the story of St. Thomas More. Um, you write, the tale of unshakable Catholic faith and fidelity to the rule of law deeply touched the Scalia's. After her husband's death, Maureen recalled that the play grew in significance to us over the years. Scalia regularly quoted it, closing out law courses with a reading of his favorite passage. Why do you think that play and Moore's example touched Nino so deeply? So first of all, we've just now mentioned Maureen Scalia. This book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, presents the most intimate portrait of the relationship between Antonin Scalia and Maureen Scalia and the most comprehensive. Uh, and Maureen Scalia is a hero of this book, or a heroine, in her own right. Uh, and as Gene Scalia said to me, he is the oldest son of Justice Scalia, a prominent attorney in his own right and formerly a cabinet official in the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. He said, you're writing a book about my dad. He said, I could probably name other important or influential Supreme Court justices. In effect, Gene told me, uh, I can't tell you anyone else who accomplished what my mom did. Uh, Maureen Scalia raised the nine Scalia children uh, without very much assistance from Antonin Scalia, as he was the first to say. And this book explores yeah. really the sacrifices of Maureen Scalia uh, to that effect. Uh, and so mm. the Scalia's reverence for this play uh, throughout their lives, after seeing it uh, as uh, newlyweds in Europe in the early 60s, um, revolves around uh, their view that their devotion to God should um, should be their first priority over any other consideration, including considerations of state or promotion or even imminent death. Mm. And, and in addition to that, and he always carried that faith with him. It was very important to him. I can remember him hissing at people who dared to talk after mass, James. He, he, he loathed that. You know, little people would be whispering to each other, oh, it's great to see you. Shh, quiet. And it was like, okay, Scalia spoke and everybody clear out. Uh, he loathed judicial activism when a judge imposed their personal politics on a case rather than applying only what is written in the text of the Constitution or the law at hand. How did he arrive at originalism? as the best way of interpreting law. Where did that come from? So the readers of Scalia Rise to Greatness will chart uh, the development of this originalism and textualism approach to the interpretation of the Constitution and statutory laws uh, that, that, that uh, was spawned in Scalia uh, and which basically was his, the, the centerpiece of his extraordinary legacy, his impact on the law and American society. Mm -hmm. Um, in his answers to questions about when his originalism first formed, uh, Scalia himself was kind of all over the lot, I saw, in reviewing all of his published interviews over the years. At times he suggested that he had always had this view. Uh, at other times he suggested that it came to him sometime around Watergate when he would have been 40 years of age. Um, having interviewed colleagues of his in the Ford-era Department of Justice, 
um, where he was assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, responsible for developing legal opinions that are binding for to say whether any particular action by the Ford administration would be lawful, lawful or unlawful. Um, his deputies told me, uh, who are still around today in teaching law, that he didn't impress upon them uh, that in their court filings at the time, in the mid-1970s, they should take any particular originalist approach. So he wasn't famous, he wasn't exhibiting at that point what he later became famous for. Uh, but all in all, mm -hmm. as we've been mm -hmm. discussing, Raymond, I think his approach to originalism, the idea that the law shouldn't be considered like a living constitution that can expand to take account of new phenomena like nuclear weapons or the internet. The law should be, under, should be applied and interpreted according to its original meaning, the meaning it was widely understood to have at the mm -hmm. time it was enacted, and not loaded up like a Christmas tree, if you will, with uh, latter-day policy preferences. And the best tool, Scalia said, for determining the original meaning of a law is not the legislative history that preceded it, where people spoke on the Senate floor or injected things into committee reports. Scalia said the best way to discern the original meaning of the Constitution or any other statute passed since then is the text of that law. And by the time he died, no less a mm -hmm. figure than Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, an appointee of Barack Obama, proclaimed that thanks to Scalia's influence, often sometimes exercised in solo dissent, not always as a part of the winning side in any Supreme Court cases, uh, thanks to his revolution, so to speak, quote, we are all originalists now. Hmm. You break new ground in the book, James, uh, regarding uh, Antonin Scalia's own thoughts about his future. It was widely believed uh, and, and often said that he had no goal or calling to the high court. You uncovered a conversation he had with a friend back in 1959 that indicates otherwise. What is that? Right. So we mentioned earlier Father Bob Connor, who knew Scalia just as mm -hmm. Bob Connor back in their Xavier days in high school. They were in the marching band together. They. Uh, they played basketball together. Scalia set Bob Connor up with a girl at that time, uh, according to Father <laughs> Connor's recollections. Uh, they drift a little bit, but remained friends through college. Uh, and this is something that Father Connor has never confided to anyone before, and he is an un unimpeachable source on the matter. Uh, I asked him if he'd ever been interviewed by anybody ever before about his relationship with Justice Scalia, and he said no. And I said, what about the FBI? Huh. Because the FBI uh, conducted background checks on Scalia four times in 14 years, and sometimes went all the way back to people who knew him when he was 13. And uh, the Father yeah. Connor said, no, not by the FBI either. I think I'd remember that. And what he told me was huh. that uh, in the summer of 1959, when Connor decided to drop out of medical school and pursue the study of Opus Dei in Rome, uh, Bob Connor's parents were distraught that they thought their son was throwing away his future, so her, his mother summoned uh, two people who she thought might be able to talk sense into her wayward son, Bob Connor. One was a Jesuit priest who did come by the house. The other was young Nino Scalina, uh, Scalia, then 22 years old um, and, um, and in law school. And uh, Father Connor told me this scene. He remembered it vividly, the, the address on Downey Road in Queens on the south side of the street where he was up on the second floor in his brother's bedroom. And out of nowhere, in walks into his brother's bedroom, Nino Scalia, whom he hadn't seen in a few years. And Scalia says to him, hmm. what are you doing? And Bob Connor, as he recounted, Father Connor recounted this to me, said, I'm going to go study Opus Dei. I asked if, as devout as he was, Scalia had any, seemed to evince any understanding of what Opus Dei was. Connor told me that he explained it to him, that it's the study of uh, the sanctity, of uh, the finding of sanctity in everyday life. And Scalia sort of nodded and shook his head thoughtfully. And then, according to Father Connor, and again, this story has never appeared in print before uh, this book, uh, Father Connor said, what are you doing? And Scalia replied, 
I'm going to the Supreme Court. And Father Connor said, how are you going to do that? And at this point in the interview, he said to me, James, he had a job lined up with some law firm in Ohio. I said, Jones Day. He said, yes, it was Jones Day, which was based then in Cleveland, but had then, as it does now, a Washington office. And Scalia said, to, when mm. Father Bob said, or Bob Connor said, how are you going to do that? Scalia said, mention the job with the law firm he had coming up, which indeed Scalia took, um, and said, they have a Washington office. I will be sent to Washington, and I will rise. I asked Father, uh, Father Connor, did that strike you as farcical, that he would say such a thing? I'm going to the Supreme Court and I will rise to the Supreme Court? He said, not at all. Nino was driven. I asked, did you get the idea that he considered a, a divine calling? He said, I bet. And the way Father Connor described it to me was a transcendental convergence, almost epiphanal in nature between the two young men, in which one declared, said, where are you going? What are you doing? And he said, I'm going to Opus Dei. And, the, and he said back to him, where are you going? What are you doing? And he said, I'm going to the Supreme Court. This answers uh, and resolves a mystery that had attended the literature in Scalia's life of when he really first began to harbor the ambition to become a Supreme Court justice. His ardent defenders, which mm -hmm. include his family, his clerks, and others, have always been leery of attributing this ambition to Scalia too soon because they did not want to contribute to a false careerist narrative of his life that the previous biographies had promulgated. My view is mm -hmm. the, the conversation with Father Connor is decisive on the point. Uh, and uh, no one, including the Scalia family, should be upset about this because there are certain individuals who know early on their destiny. Charles Schulz, the creator of Peanuts, yeah. Charlie Brown and Snoopy, said he wanted to be a cartoonist from the age of five. Antonin Scalia, from a very young age, knew what the Supreme Court was and why he belonged there, and he pursued it within propriety. Uh, it was not through careerist uh, sort of currying of favor with more powerful men by tailoring his opinions this way or that. Frequently he did the opposite and he rendered unpopular opinions. But uh, it was kind of a manifest destiny and that's why I consider Father Connor one of the most important interviewees in the entire book. James, we could go on much longer, but the book is really amazing. I mean, not only have you captured, I think, the man uh, and his eloquence, but you've done it eloquently. Um, Thank you. Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, by James Rosen, is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. And you can follow James at, uh, on Twitter at James Rosen TV. Thank you so much. Thank you, Raymond. Tonight, I have something a little special for you. On the occasion of the release of my new book, The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison, I decided to turn the tables on myself and have someone interview me. And since Thomas Edison's mother is such an important part of the story, I'm joined by Catholic mom, speaker, and author of her own book, Women Made New, Kristalina Everett. Kristalina, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to have you here and to talk to you about this first installment of my Turnabout Tales. Uh, and now I'm going to shut up. I'm going to let you take it from there. You know, it's such an honor I get to do this, really. It's such a pleasure and it's exciting. But I'm going to tell you right off the bat, Raymond, you sent me a copy yeah. and it's phenomenal. My kids absolutely loved it. And I put it through their oh, fire and I sat them down. And they loved it. They had questions. They were very engaged, even in the middle of it. A couple interruptions of, well, why this or why that? And sometimes they just kind of zone out. Good. And I can tell a book. But this one was great. And I paid attention. And, and it was good. And they were very curious about it. But one thing I'm curious about right off the bat with you is why are you calling it the Turnabout Tales? Oh, good question. Well, this is the first in a series. And as you know, 
Uh, it concerns, as each book in the series will, a historic life and a crisis in a young person's life where, by outward appearances, this would seem to be the end of the road. Uh, 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 it's a crossroads. It's a crisis. And many times young people just give up. Adults do the same thing. But if you look closely, and the motto of the Turnabout Tales series is challenges faced, paths altered, history changed. And that really is what happens not only in this story, but in all these great lives. It's the decision made in the crisis that oftentimes opens up not only the vocation and the destiny of that individual, but changes the history from that moment on. So uh, Edison is a wonderful example of that, as are the other figures that I'll cover in later books. But uh, I'm delighted that your children enjoyed it and had as much fun as I did putting it together. No, it was phenomenal. What drew you to young Edison's story? There were so many that you could choose from. Why mm. him? Yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell you, I came across somebody had given me one of these big biographies of Edison and full disclosure. I hadn't read it for years and years and years. It just sat on my shelf. I was going on vacation. I took it with me and I, I'll give you a little insight into my odd reading habits. Uh, I think it comes from reading reading mysteries as a kid. I often read the last chapter first and then I wow, go really? back okay. and forth. Well, I go to the end to see if, you know, if, if, if the squeeze is worth the juice. Um, and, and that last chapter in this particular Edison biography, there was an interview with Edison late in life, and he said, my mother was the making of me. If not for my mother and her belief, faith, and devotion in me at a particular time in my life, Nancy Edison, I would never have become an inventor. And I thought to myself, first of all, who is this Nancy Edison? What was the crisis in his life? And so then I started doing my research. It took me about four months. I visited all the places, the Edison lab, the birthplace. Uh, there's a facsimile of the first Edison laboratory in Detroit. So I went to all those places and collected so much information and um, kind of condensed it all. And, I, and I, originally I was going to write a little chapter book but I wanted families to have access to it, so I decided to turn it into what I call a family read. Other people cruelly call them children's books or picture books. No, they're family reads. It's true. We got together as a family and we read it and it was great. And I love that you highlighted Thank his you. mother. Mothers play such a pivotal role in their child's education. And in our day and age, mm. it seems like there's to take that and rob that of us as parents. And Nancy really was this strong woman. And I love when you highlighted, she went in there and she told that teacher, and my son can learn. And my kids love it. They're laughing. They're like, mom, you would do something like that. It was great. But <laughs> well, her and speak to mother's hearts out there right now about this book, because it actually really helped me and gave me a little oomph of, you know, I, I am in charge. I need to take care of my kids. And look what that woman did for her son's life, I can do the same for my children in a different way. Well, this is why, though this is a story that took place more than a century ago, the lesson and the example remain so contemporary, Kristalina. And as I read about parents at school boards and people trying to, you know, keep the curriculum hidden from parents, and how so many times the rigidity of the school setting and the testing system writes off or pushes kids to the margins. That's what happened in this story. Thomas Edison, at eight years old, and, and again, 
every one of these turnabout tales will focus not on the womb to tomb life of a person, but on that crisis moment and how it was resolved and how that opened up the rest of the life. In this case, Edison's eight years old. He's registered in school, and the schoolmaster announces to everyone that Edison cannot be taught and he's addle-brained. Well, young Tom breaks down in tears, runs home to his mother. His mother goes back, tells the professor, look, my son has more intelligence than you'll ever have, and I'm taking him home, and I'm going to educate him myself. Now, she was an educator, okay, from Canada. So she, she had training. But what okay. she does with her son is a great example for all of us, Kristalina, which is she bent and accommodated the learning to her son and his style of, of, of uh, absorbing information. She accommodated his place where he was. Now, many biographers think he probably had ADHD um, and therefore had trouble with memorization and sitting in the class for long periods. But Nancy Edison understood the brilliance of her son, the curiosity innately there, and she fed it, fed his passions. You know, from someone who struggles with ADD myself, honestly, and some of my children actually have different learning styles. The ones that did have it, mm. I wanted to see if they kind of pick that up with Thomas in here, and they did. And they thought, well, he does learn differently, Mommy. You know, one of them even said that because he really does struggle. But huh. that a real thing right now with children that they have different ways of learning and this was so great because Thomas Edison is such an overcomer even at his young age but his mother nurtured that and so it's nice now because even when we did homework after we were reading this I said well think of Thomas he struggled and look what he became and I kind of reminded them you know <laughs> so it was perfect because so he was really some things with homework but well uh, Kristalina you know he the the brilliance, the brilliance of, of Nancy Edison, and I want to pick up on what you were saying there, she, she recognized that, yes, he was getting into trouble at a young age. You know, he wanted to see how the canal works, so he jumps in the canal. He wanted to see how a grain elevator works, so he jumped into the grain elevator. He wanted to figure out how honey was made, so he split a beehive open. I mean, he burned down the family barn trying to investigate fire. So he made some catastrophes, but she understood he was learning with his hands. And Edison said later, my mother taught me to learn with my head and with my hands. And I think all of us can profit from that. It's certainly how I learn. You know, you put it on your body, you try it out, you get it on its feet. That's sometimes the only way to know if something really works or not. It was applied knowledge. And that really is the beginning of the Edison Labs and the first research and development uh, uh, facility in our country. It came from Nancy Edison's training of her son. Oh, that's beautiful. And such an inspiration for mothers, too, because I definitely carried something away after I read this book as well. Now, you made this mm, character very relatable um, to a contemporary audience. How did you do that? Well, part of it is you find those moments that I think kids and me will find exciting and fun. I always look for the slapstick first because I think if you can keep people entertained, they'll stay with you for the story. Um, so we get we see him doing these, you know, bizarre and, uh, and, and outlandish experiments at times. There are a few I left out of the book just because we didn't have enough time. For instance, one you won't find in the book. Um, Edison realized that birds were eating worms, and he wanted to 
figure out how to make people fly. So he collected different worms, ground them up, and made a little girl next door eat the worms. Well, she didn't oh fly, gosh. but she got really sick. Uh, yeah, so, you know, you don't want the kids doing that, so I thought I'd better leave that one out. But, no, that's a great one. That's but, but again, look at the mind. You know, it's a great mind at work, even as a little child. And God bless that mother, Nancy Edison, who recognized it early, fed his curiosity, gave him science manuals alongside novels. And because he was deaf starting at 12 years old, which I didn't realize till I started doing the research, um, that allowed him to focus, hyper-focus on things in almost isolation. So again, two things the world considers liabilities. Okay, ADHD and deafness were the blessings and the beginning of the world's greatest inventor. Uh, an important lesson, I think, for all of us. I think that is the biggest lesson to take away from this book. And you hit the nail on the head. This book seems like it would be an excellent Easter gift for your, the, everyone's children out there, right? Yeah, well, I think it is I, because you know what? It's a it is a story in a microcosm in a family of resurrection and great sacrifice. Uh, Edison didn't have an easy path. Neither did his family. And look, I'm not saying he's a savior or a saint, though I do think he should be recognized as the patron saint of homeschooling, because I can't think of another homeschooled kid who did more than Thomas Edison. I mean, look, the inventions of this man more than a century ago, we are right now in this moment, Kristalina, beneficiaries of the lights around us, the microphone, the motion picture camera, the lithium battery that we have today was really the successor of the alkaline battery that Thomas Edison created. All of this would not have been possible, but for this little castaway boy that everybody wrote off. His own father said he was a dunce, but his mom saw potential there, saw something special, saw the light that we continue to shine in to this day. You know, there's something to say, Raymond, about our children that do learn differently because you think someone like Thomas Edison is, is somewhat maybe irrelevant and our children have no idea, a lot of them, even who that is, yet they turn on the lights because of him. You know, it's, it's really amazing. And just to speak to the mothers out there, don't you think that if they do see those differences in their child, to really just embrace them, nurture them. And that book even made me think more about that with my own children. But mothers out there right now that maybe have kids or that are difficult, that are struggling in school, what do you have to say to them? Well, look, uh, families are really important. And moms particularly, but dads and grandmothers and aunts and uncles, if you stay close to that child, and Nancy Edison was obviously very close to her son, she, he was the last of her children, um, the, and the last child born was 14 years older than Edison. So, you know, there was a big gap. He was basically an only child at home. And what you see here is uh, she, she understood where he was. She accompanied him through the difficulties. And look, I dedicate this book to my wife and my own mother because I watched both of them accompany their own children. And as you said earlier, Every child is different. Every child, even in the same household, from the same parents, they learn differently. They see the world differently. They have different vocations and pursuits, things they're drawn to. Nancy Edison recognized that Thomas Edison was wondering how things worked, how the world operated. 
and she gave him scientific manuals that honestly are beyond me. You know, I've, I flipped through the actual books that he had as a child in the archives, and I, I, I couldn't comprehend half of it. But he used this to create his own experiments. He, he created a telegraph from a neighbor's house to his own house and his own telegraph machine. Um, you know, and, and that would lead later to the Edison Labs, where he continued to tinker and play. And he said that throughout his life. Every moment is play. None of it is work. And if you have that mindset, I think, not only as a child but as an adult, your work will have a kind of shiny edge to it that I think attracts people. And, and it makes the work richer and better. I mean, it will have its own uniqueness, right? And not to be afraid of that. Do you fear that we're losing uh, in America stories like these that are so rich in teaching us such amazing lessons like Thomas Edison? Well, the whole reason I wanted to do this turnabout tales and start with Edison is because you have a historic figure that touches the lives of all of us, including children. So I thought it was a neat connector and a person they probably didn't know a whole lot about. But every moment, every bit of this series will uh, remind people, I think, of the important historical foundations of the lives who went before and the lessons they left us. And we have to commemorate and hold these lives here. And I worry that because of the test requirements, because of curriculum, we're losing what were once uh, well-known American figures and worldwide figures. So this is my attempt to kind of do something positive and remind people that history affords us great lessons and things that we can take to our own hearts and create our own turnabout tales. That's what I'm really trying to do here. That's wonderful. And also it teaches us that they made mistakes, but they weren't afraid to make those mistakes. They were overcomers with the trials in their own lives and situations. Right. And that it doesn't matter who you are, your background, that you can be an overcomer in any situation right now. Thank you for writing this book, Raymond. It helped me and it helped my children. Aww. And I look forward to the other ones that you are going to come out with. Where can everyone uh, purchase this book? And I just want to encourage all moms out there, if you have young ones or even up to 12 years old or a little older, they'll really enjoy and benefit from this book. So where can they buy it, Raymond? Well, they can get it everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the EWTN Religious Catalog, wherever books are sold. But uh, I have to tell you, and I'll, I'll leave you with this, and then I have a question for you. Now I, now I get to take back the microphone that Edison made. Um, the, one of the things, and you touched on it, Nancy Edison taught her son not to be afraid to fail. And Thomas Edison was not so much an inventor of new things as a perfecter and refiner of things that went before. And he often said, our greatest weakness is giving up too early. Try just one more time. And his whole approach to creativity was a process of elimination. He would try and try and fail and try and fail and try until he got it right. That's how he worked with that intensity. That's how we should live too. Don't be afraid to fail and learn with your head as well as your hands. Those are the lessons I took away from the book. Now, Kristalina, I have to ask you, you wrote a beautiful book, um, Women Made New, Reflections on Adversity, Transformation, and Healing. It features one of my favorite and maybe dearest women, certainly an important woman in my life. Tell me about the book, why you wrote it, and who that woman might be. 
<laughs> that woman is Mother Angelica, and she has touched both of our lives on such a level that I wanted to introduce my generation of women about her, but also that she is an overcomer as well, since we're talking about that. And she came from a divorced family. She came from a mess, and she overcame that. And I feel like she is still setting the world on fire from heaven um, with the the with EWTN and the message that it's bringing to Jesus all over the world, to all the people that that wouldn't be there if she didn't just take one step at a time, do everything that Jesus was asking her to do, regardless of her fear. And I wrote this book for women that are struggling, that are having a hard time, that came from a background that maybe they've had an abortion or they've been raped or whatever's happening in their life. It's not always pretty. A lot of the times it's messy, but it doesn't matter who they are, where they've been, what they've done. All that matters right now is where they go from here. And I give them kind of the ABCs and all the other contributors in this book of how they can start their own healing process and become the woman that God has created them to be. Well, thank you for being there and for, for this book. Women Made New is available, by the way, at EW10's catalog, wherever books are sold. Kristalina Everett, thank you so much for doing this for me, and we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Raven. God bless. Bye-bye. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. I know.